As we saw last week, Micah's primary concern, the major theme of the book of Micah, has to do with justice and injustice. In fact, by far, hands down, the most famous verse out of Micah comes in chapter 6, and it operates as a pretty good summary of the book. We see this here um, in chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so what we're doing in this series is walking through the components of a Christian view of justice, recognizing that we live in a world where injustice is prevalent and recognizing that the solutions that are being presented today for how to meet injustice are various, okay? There are lots of options out there. And so the question is, what makes up the uniquely Christian components? In other words, how do we shape our response as God's people to injustice in the world. And we are using Micah as a template, and each week we'll focus on a different component. So last week we took a look at idolatry. And simply put, we recognized that because the behavior of human beings is bound up in worship, that injustice always stems from the things that we prioritize over all others. As you may remember, I said that we never, never dehumanize others until we have deified something that is not God. Okay? And so we saw that last week, and this week we pick up in chapter 2, and here he gets to the issues at hand, the boots-on-the-ground reality of injustice in the people of God, primarily in the southern kingdom known as Judah. Okay, in other words, where the line of David, David was ruling over the two and a half tribes. Let's pick up here in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read, <coughs> excuse me, all of chapter 2 together, and then we'll pray. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, for which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster." In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. 
Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about utter winds and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. Let's pray. Father, we ask for a clarity of mind and a sensitivity of heart this morning. We pray that your word would illuminate the world we live in and the part that you've called us to play. But more importantly, Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself, that you would put on display your character, that you would demonstrate yourself again as worthy of our worship, that you would be the front and center, and that as we look to you, our own behavior, our own hearts, our own compassion and concern for the world around us would be transformed into your image. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm reminded again, even reading through this, of one of the challenges of teaching the Bible, which we call the tyranny of knowledge. Simply put, I've spent all week, and to be honest, much longer in this passage, and you have not. And so there's always a danger for me to open this passage and forget the things you do not know. But as I was reading through chapter 2, I was struck by how difficult this passage is on a first reading. Did you notice? There's a whole lot of imagery, there's a whole lot of questions, there's grammatical tensions that even Hebrew scholars fight about in this passage, there's a whole lot going on. But one of the things I always like to do when I open the Bible for myself and I have to wrestle through a text that is very far from us in time and culture, is I like to remind myself that I can always start with the lowest common denominator. I can always reduce and go, okay, I don't know any of these things, but here's the one thing I do know. And in that sense, it's pretty easy to see here the problem that Micah is addressing. And again, we see it in chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Now, I can probably add to your insight this morning of what those verses mean, but again, in simplicity, it's pretty clear what's happening. There are people in Israel who are laying in bed at night thinking about other people's properties and how to take them for themselves. And as soon as dawn, uh, you know, the morning dawns, they go out, they go to the courts, they accomplish this, they seize and they take, and it calls it very simply here, oppression. Right? The utilizing of their power against the powerless for their advantage against their disadvantage. Right? That's pretty simple. Now, here's a few things that we can add to this that help us to understand Micah's perspective on this. First, notice that opening word, woe. Okay? Now, that's not W-O-A-H, which is really the only modern English equivalent. Right? It's what we say to a horse or when we're surprised by what just happened, woe. Right? That's not this word. This word is a word of mourning. Okay? This is a word that you say at a funeral. OK? 
okay? And when it's used prophetically, and you find it in Micah, you find it in Isaiah, you find it in the mouth of Jesus himself, it is basically the signaling of a death sentence, okay? It's a very strong word. Here are people who are wrapped in wealth in the upper echelon of society. One commentator I even read said it was helpful to think about this chapter as if everybody is having some sort of big celebratory high-end banquet, right? And there's wine and strong drink. We see that in the chapter. They're enjoying themselves. They're doing all this. The, the who's who of Judean society is there. And here comes Micah into the middle of their party and yells, woe to you, right? It's a strong reaction, okay? Second, as I mentioned, it says that they work evil on their beds, okay? Clearly, they're not, um, you know, um, they're not actually doing their work from home. The idea here is that they're planning instead of sleeping, right? The idea is that when they go to bed, their final thoughts are how they're going to take advantage of their neighbors tomorrow, right? Their minds are consumed with plotting to accomplish the growth of their own real estate through the taking advantage of others. But I also want you to notice when they do this action, right? Here it's labeled as, <clears throat> as thievery, right? They seize them, they take them away, they're stealing, but they don't do it in the cover of darkness, right? They plot it on their beds, but they wait to do this until the sun is up. Why? Because the way that they're going about this is totally and completely legal. It's not something they have to hide. In fact, the idea of the morning dawns probably points to their first destination in their day planner, which is the courts. Okay, because that's when the courts open, right when the sun comes up. And you can see that, read First and Second Kings, and how often the king sits to reside and preside over the courts first thing in the morning. Okay. And so what's happening here most likely is that these are people who have defaulted on their loans. These are people who can no longer afford to pay because they, uh, uh, they have at some time faced a crisis and found themselves in the pockets of a wealthy benefactor, and now the rug is about to be pulled out from under them. Okay. But most likely, when we look at this, it's completely legal. In fact, notice what it says next. It says, it's in the power of their hand. Okay. Now, there is an interesting allusion with an A there uh, that's easy to miss in the English. It actually says, because their hand is their God. Okay. And it may be that this is a direct tie to what we saw last week, that their power, their strong arm is the thing that they worship. It defines their life. Might makes right. But it also may be that this word over time is a dead metaphor. And so it's better just to read it that it's in their power to do this. They are capable. Okay. So notice what they do is um, well thought out. It's something they're capable of. It's something that seems to be legal. And yet here it's labeled as oppression. In fact, look at God's response in verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster. Now, here's another thing that's hard for you to see if you're not familiar with the Hebrew. That word there for disaster is the same word that was used for evil back in verse 1. Those who work evil on their beds. Here God says, behold, I'm working evil as well. Okay. And Hebrew can do that. This word is a non-moral word. It means disaster, but when you intend disaster for someone else, that's evil 
But here God says basically that there's going to be a just response. You're plotting, I also have a plan. You're destroying lives, I have planned disaster for you. Notice also from which you cannot remove your necks. What is that a picture of? Powerlessness. Here, they find in their power to do so, and God says, well, let's put you against a little bit different of an opponent. Let's let's go toe-to-toe ourselves. He says, you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And then notice verse 4, in that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly. Now, it doesn't tell us who will taunt these wealthy landowners who have been destroyed by what happens But when we keep reading, it becomes pretty evident who the taunting audience is. Look at the words. We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Okay. That is clearly the way that those who were taken advantage of by these men would have spoken of what happened to them. This man has stolen my fields. An apostate now owns my my land. We are utterly ruined. In other words, even here in the mouths of those who effectively say, serves you right. Or to put it differently, now there is justice. To this audience, basically, they see that this is not out of left field. That this is not circumstantial. Right? That this isn't just happenstance or the hidden hand of the market. That this is God setting right what was wrong. Okay. In fact, notice verse 5. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now here's a major difference between Israeli society and ours. Ancient Israel and ours. How did property work in Israel? If you go all the way back to the books of Deuteronomy and the books of Joshua... They were handed out by lot to individual families, and they became the permanent inheritance of those families. Okay? In other words, you didn't buy your way into Israel because you were part of Israel. God gave you the land. Now, Israel understood and recognized for a long time that made God the landowner and them the tenants. Okay? But what happened... In fact, let's, let's add one more layer to that. If you read Deuteronomy closely, you'll discover that there were even ways to set this right when it went wrong. So, for example, imagine someone because of illness or injury or even because of irresponsibility could not pay a debt. They could indeed sell their land or even sell themselves as hired servants of another farmer. They could do that. But there was a setup process of setting things right first in what we call the kinsman redeemer. This guy comes up in the book of Ruth, right? Somebody who can step in, who's part of the family, and on his brother or cousin's behalf can say, I want to buy that land back and bring it back into the family. But there was also the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years where there would be a complete reset. And all property would be returned, which means even if someone sold you their property, like the postal service, it was a long-term lease at best. And every 50 years it was to be reset. Now, the, the ability of that to maintain society is really impressive. Because it means that you aren't going to be permanently subject to the mistakes of your grandparents. Right? There is a real resetting. However, 
We're never told once in Scripture that Israel actually performed such a jubilee. It doesn't mean that they didn't, but at least by this point, here's what's happening. A more modern sense of real estate has become common in Israel, and so there are people who no longer have their familial inheritance as given to them by God, but have added to it tracts of land because they've been providing loans to people and then demanding them pay them and taking the land from them. Okay? And so the setting is relatively ancient. The sin is relatively modern. Okay? This is about property. This is about real estate. And again, it looks like the way that they're going about here is in some sense completely within their legal rights. In fact, not only that, but as we read on in the chapter, we also find that it has, uh, they have their uh, promoters from within the religious sector of Israel, right? When we get to verse 6, a set of detractors step in and go, Micah, shut up. Who? Who are these people who say, don't preach? They're these false prophets. They're the ones who have embraced this or at the very least, refuse to condemn this practice. And so he also addresses them. Look at verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Right? That's the threat that Micah makes. He says, because, uh, because of this oppression, there is going to be uh, a major land grab, and it's not going to be, spoiler alert, from within Israel, but Babylon. Enemies are going to come in, and they're going to take all of Israel back on God's behalf. That's why it says in verse 5, Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. When God does complete the exile and brings them back into Israel, these men won't be around to receive an inheritance again. Okay, that's the idea. But there's this whole prophetic, religious bolstering of this system. In the next chapter, we'll see that there's in, uh, there are judges and rulers taking bribes to make this happen. That there are priests and there are prophets who are promoting this, who are um, promising blessing for a, f- a fee, like some sort of religious mafia, right? We'll see all of that to come. And so they have religious backing. In fact, more importantly as we'll see in just a minute, there is an underlying ideology that is leading to this practice. But first, I want you to notice the key word back in chapter 2, verse 2. They covet fields and seize them. In other words, this passage in Micah's mind is not just about an unjust practice, it's about what the Bible calls covetousness. Now, covetousness is a significant idea in the scriptures. In fact, it makes the list of the top ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Do not covet is how the Ten Commandments end. But what does it mean to covet? Speaking of words that we no longer hear, except maybe if you watch certain British period dramas and they'll say, I I covet your advice, right? That's the only place this comes up. Um, To covet means specifically to desire something that belongs to someone else. It's pretty simple. To desire something that belongs to someone else. Now we can see that covetousness, when it's coupled with evil plans and power that's in your hand, leads to taking those things. But covetousness doesn't need to take 
to covet. Just the desire itself is where this starts, which is significant. Even Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans says, you know, when I thought about my own righteousness before the law, I thought of myself as blameless, and then I thought about you shall not covet. And he says, and then I was undone. Why? Because unlike you shall not murder or you shall not steal or you shall not commit adultery, which focus on the act, you shall not covet focuses on the heart. Now, Jesus very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount says the heart matters in all of those. And so there is a direct line between hatred and murder. There's a direct, direct line between lust and adultery. And so it's not that this is the only heart-based one, but it's the easiest to see heart-based one. Okay. Covetousness is the issue at hand. Now that brings us back to what we saw last week when it comes to idolatry. Because Paul reminds us both in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. And it's worth unpacking that for just a second. In what way is wanting what somebody else has for yourself idolatry? Two ways. One, it's a rejection of the good provision of God. It says, if God were truly good, he would have given me that instead of this. And two, it's a recognition that if I had that, I would have the good life. It's a recognition that I need that to give my life meaning, value, worth. Okay? It's an elevation of a thing, even if that thing is a grape vineyard or a 75-inch television. It's an elevation of a thing as being essential to life when in actuality, God is to be our life. Okay? And so covetousness is the underlying thing, and I think we can suggest, I'm going out on a limb here, but not very far, I think we can suggest that the reason this works at the high end in levels of clear and evident oppression is because it's prevalent at the low end and is therefore co uh, collectively connected to a cultural sin. And that brings me back to the point that I made a few minutes ago, that underlying this practice is an ideology. And that's what we see when we talk with the detractors in verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Okay, so first, notice the first thing out of their mouth is, Micah, you're wrong. That's just not going to happen. But I want you to notice the wording of Micah here. Do not preach, thus they preach. Right? And so it, to put it in our language, hey man, who are you to judge? But in doing so, they make their own judgment. Right? He recognizes that they can reject this ideology, but they do so because they believe another. Okay. And so here, Micah has presented a God who will bring about justice, and they say no. But that's not because they don't believe in a just God, right? As we'll see in just a second here, it's because they believe that God's tolerance for Israel is inexhaustible. In other words, why would a loving God be plotting disaster? Right? Now, that's just a baseline idea. It's not the most important one. Uh, look at verse 7. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? 
Now, this is the section that I mentioned to you that Hebrew scholars debate. It's hard here to keep track of who's talking. Are these the words of Micah's detractors, questions for Micah, or are these questions Micah asks of them? And scholars are, are confused about this. It's hard to tell. Um, in my ESV here, it's very clear that the translators see these as the words of Micah, which is why they lack quotation marks. They're part of the book and not part of the, you know, the voice that he's responding to. And I think that makes good sense of things because notice what the questions are. Has the Lord grown impatience? Is that possible for God to come to the end of his patience? And the, the answer is, if justice is to be done, it has to be yes. This is the difference between patience and tolerance. Okay. Patience cares and will bring about action but defers it. For example, it says in the New Testament that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, he is patient or long-suffering. Okay. But if he never addresses these evils, then he's tolerant and therefore unjust. He doesn't care. But more importantly, notice what it says at the end there of verse 7. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. You see, if you read the Old Testament, there are chocks, chock full. It's chock full of blessings for Israel. But those blessings are covenantal blessings. They're blessings that are, if you walk in my ways, then I will bless you. But here, they are walking against the ways of the Lord and still assuming the blessing. In fact, I would suggest to you that as they look at their lives, these wealthy landowners are basically saying, isn't our wealth evidence of God's pleasure? Isn't the fact that we're doing so well in life proof that God cares for me? And so they are actually convinced of their own righteousness because just look at how great life is going for me. Now, that might strike you as tremendously blind, but all you have to do is read the scriptures to see that this is a constant problem for humanity, that we are fully capable of convincing ourselves not just that evil isn't evil, but that it is actually a demonstration of our own righteousness, okay? But what I want you to notice here is that there is an underlying ideology, and there always is, Maybe it's a survivalist uh, or survival of the fittest mentality that basically says, hey, this is just the way it is. Life is a competition. Don't blame me for competing. Or maybe it's a justifying legalism that says nothing I've done is against the law. If this is wrong, they should change the laws. Until they do so, I am welcome to, right? Or maybe, maybe it is an ideology, uh, as we see here, that is rooted in covetousness. And this is what I would suggest to you this week. I would suggest <coughs> um, that oppression like this stems from a mentality that says we must pursue better. Look at, look at how he, um, he closes this passage in verse 11. If a man should go about and utter winds and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. What do you think of when you think there of wine and strong drink? Okay. A couple of ideas. One is 
a party, right? It's abundance, okay? But second, and I think this is intentional, wine and strong drink here uh, is something that dulls the mind, okay? And so he sees the preachers here as both promoting a life of fullness and abundance and pleasure, as well as inoculating them against conviction, dulling their senses against the truth. This idea underlies the behavior of these unjust men. In other words, their bad behavior is rooted in their view of the good life. Okay. Now, it may be that that good life, uh, you know, manifests itself in ways that are not strictly oppressive. And here with these, it does. But I would suggest to you that covetousness is always in danger of injustice. Okay. I would suggest to you that there is an underlying uh, mentality that constantly pursues the better, that is built upon the more, that obscures our ability to distance ourselves from the injustice of our world. Because as we pursue more and as we pursue better, it does two things. One is it removes us from, if you will, the... Um, it removes us from the chain of events that requires to keep that going. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be kind of specific and harsh here only for sake of illustration. But considering yourself, consider your cell phones. What does it take to create the consumable cell phone, the one that we replace every year or every two years? A massive market of production. In fact, we're feeling the pinch on that right now in all levels. Have you tried to buy a car lately? Right? COVID messed everything up in our production line. Okay. But do you ever think about all of the things that are entailed and involved in that? Now, could that be valuable and just and even promoting of human flourishing? Yes. Creating, producting, demanding and selling, buying, all of these things can be part of human uh, flourishing through working together. But you know as well as I do, there's a dark underside that doesn't naturally or normally go that way. There was a man by the name of John Woolman, W-O-O-L-M-A-N, who was a uh, Quaker in early American history. And as far as I can tell, he was one of the earliest Americans to fight against slavery. Something I think we would all agree and recognize as oppression. But what was really interesting about John Woolman was that he also seems to be, as far as I can tell, the first conscientious consumer in the history of the world. So for example, <coughs> John Woolman had to travel to England, and he recognized that the cost of his ticket was directly subsidized by the slave trade. That there was a direct connection between the cheapness of his ticket and this constant moving economy of slavery that was moving people. So he calculated the economic cost of crossing the ocean if slavery didn't exist, and he paid that fee. 
Now, that's intense, and I would suggest to you that there is a Quakerism or a Mennonite or an Anabaptist mindset that tries to step away from the injustice of these worlds by being non-participatory, which is just imaginary. You cannot remove yourself to remove your guilt because you cannot remove yourself. However, Woolman rightly recognized a connection between this economic quarter that was unjust and the economy as a whole. He recognized that his desire for convenient travel may actually be perpetuating the need for injustice. You see, that's the problem with covetousness. I don't think it is in many of our power to steal other people's property at this level, to seize people's real estate. But covetousness that view of the good life that demands the better, that requires more, that's constantly set on upgrading and improving, that settles for symbols of status, all of these things, that is hard to remove from our own life, from our own culture, from recognition here. Look with me at verse 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. Okay. Do not my words do good to those who do uprightly? And then he says, but lately you've been my enemy. You've been against me. Not with me, not even for me. And then notice how he describes it. He says, first, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. Second, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. And third, from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. I want you to recognize that the adjectives that are used there, it's not just a robe, but a rich robe. It's not just a house, but a delightful house. And then lastly, it says my splendor. I want you to recognize that there's a little bit of a surprise factor in that. Who is he talking about here? Who are these men whose robes are stolen, these women whose houses are taken, and these children? Are they rock, walking the runway in Paris? Are they, you know, doing their shopping at Rodeo Drive? Of course not. Right? The, these who are victimized here are those who do not have the financial or societal power to resist this injustice. So why does it identify it here as a rich robe? Is the idea here that a wealthy landowner is looking out his window and going, boy, that guy's three-piece suit, I want that. And so he figures out a way to take it from him, legally? Of course not. There is a recognition here of a dignity inherent in the clothing, even of the poor. It may not be rich to you, but it's rich to them. Right? It has value to them. The house. Is, is the idea here that the man is seizing a 13-bedroom house? Of course not. It's just in the way of this man's ambitions. It's just a shack that he's going to demolish. It's just a place he's going to replace with townhomes built three times as tall, right? But that doesn't change the fact that it's the delight of the woman who lives there. But I want you to notice there's also a progression here from robe to house to the very splendor of God. Look again at that last sentence there. It says, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. What does that even mean? 
The word that's used here for splendor is sometimes translated glory. In fact, it's tied in Psalm 8 to the design of humanity itself. That God has created us, if you will, for splendor. Now, it may be that all that Mike is talking about here is that close relationship between the land and the Lord of Israel. In fact, Christopher Wright points out that land was so significantly tied to the covenant and your relationship with God in the Old Testament, taking away someone's land was a direct threat against their relationship with God. Because he was the giver of this land. He had created this inheritance for you. It was living in the land as a worshiper of Yahweh that defined everything. Okay, And so an economic threat like this was a religious attack as well. And again, I think we can update and recognize that. Is there a sense where the goodness of God is veiled by injustice for children? Right? He says, you take away my splendor forever for their children. Right? But I would suggest there's something deeper going on. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1, when mankind is created, they are created, according to the Bible, in the image of God. Okay? To reflect God's glory. And how are they told to do that in Genesis 1.28? They're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. In other words, and theologians call this the creation mandate, in other words, as human beings cultivate flourishing on earth, they image God. Do you understand that? You have a God-given destiny as a human being. If you're not a Christian this morning, this still applies to you. You have a God-given destiny to promote flourishing in the world in a way that makes manifest the goodness and character of God. Now listen, the Bible recognizes multiple causes of poverty, and our response to poverty should be the same. It recognizes that there are places of irresponsibility and direct personal sin that leads to poverty. Just read the book of Proverbs, right? And so that requires loving confrontation, a call to change, and that's part of the salvation that Jesus brings, is the ability to change so that sinful patterns can be broken. It also recognizes that sometimes poverty stems from crisis, from famine, from earthquakes, from things that are too big, not because you haven't been a good steward like the ant and saved up, but because the disaster is so big it's just exhausted your supplies. And if you read the Old Testament or if you read the New, what you discover in that is relief work, right? Even in the New Testament, a massive famine hits Israel and Paul tours all the churches of the Roman Empire and takes up an offering for them. Okay, That's part of the work we're called to as Christians. But there is also poverty that comes from injustice. And the response there is one of accountability and consequence. Okay, And, and we need to maintain all three. But this idea that he promotes here, that you take away my splendor forever, this idea of the image of God helps us to balance those things because it means that as a church, when we pursue justice, that doesn't just mean giving handouts. It means getting people back to a place where they can participate in the image of God, where they can be a part of that flourishing, where they can produce and create and provide for their families and cultivate, right? This is stewardship restored 
not a new benefactor relationship. Okay, and so this is what's problem, what the problem is with certain government programs that actually de-incentivize getting back on your feet by pulling away aid as soon as you start to improve, right? It, it makes people go, it's easier to not. It doesn't create stewards, but dependence, okay? But also, we cannot read this passage without recognizing a significant accountability. In fact, remember that the judgment that falls on these men actually falls on the whole nation. All of Israel is removed and taken to Babylon. Okay, there is a collective culpability in these things. In fact, we see it in the false prophets. Even when somebody speaks up and rings the alarm bell and you know, whistle blows the whole oper- operation, the other so-called prophets of God say, hey, don't talk about that. Right? There's a self-preservation of this collective culture of covetousness. Okay. But how does God see it? Look at verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. What Micah's contemporaries saw in the empire of Judah was flourishing. It was a time of great financial growth, increasing of power. There was this whole new wealthy constituency. All this is going on and God looks at it and he says, it's unclean and it's destroying you. Now, the idea of the image of God emphasizes the individual responsibility that all human beings have. But there is also clearly in this text a solidarity and a commitment to one another. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it talks more about taking care of the poor than any other chapter. And you know what the key word of that chapter is that's repeated more than 15 times? It's the word brother. Solidarity means recognizing that the problems of your own or of others are now your own. There's a recognition and a commitment that is communal, that is implied in here. Now the last thing we need to look at is the last two verses here in 12 and 13. And they are a pivot. Okay, what have we been talking about so far? We've been talking about impending destruction because of injustice in Israel that's that's cultivated by prophets who say disaster is not coming. And then suddenly look at the words of Micah in verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. What is that? It's victory. It's hope. Now, this is the cadence of the book of Micah. We'll see this again. It's judgment, and then hope, and then judgment, and then hope, and then one last round of judgment followed by hope. And notice this first one when it shows up is just two verses. It's a very small thing, but it starts some of the themes that we're going to see throughout Micah. The idea of the remnant, the idea of the coming king, the idea of the shepherd of Israel. They're all bridged here, but doesn't it seem out of place? Doesn't it seem disconnected? Here, Micah says, judgment is coming, and the other prophets say, no, it's not, and then he says, salvation is coming. What is going on? 
as we will see, the differences that Micah recognizes that God's going to save Israel, not just in the flesh, if you will, but save the very soul of Israel, not by keeping them from this, but taking them through it. Okay. But nonetheless, there is a different ideological world in these last few verses. Notice it's a couple of things. Uh, first off, notice it starts with sheep in a fold, verse 12, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Does that sound enjoyable? No, it sounds crowded, right? The idea here is that they're hemmed in and there's too many people in this tiny space. That's why the waybreaker has to come because he's going to break it out and take them out into greener and broader pastures. And so what we recognize here is a God who sees. What we recognize here is a God who knows the conditions of his people. Think of the book of Exodus. If we want to know God's character, the Exodus is a good place to go. But notice what God says here in the opening chapters of Exodus. Here's what I want. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now listen to this. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. The hope that is at the end of chapter 2 is the hope for those who are the victims of this oppression. And the hope is that God is going to make a way for them. The recognition of God's character here is not the tolerant God who looks the other way at injustice, but the shepherd God who cares for each and every individual sheep and will provide for them. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that when we are addressing the covetousness in our own heart, there is no better way to do so than to recognize God as shepherd. Think of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want that is contentment. Does that mean that you're not hemmed in as we see here? Does that mean that you don't walk through the valley of, shepherd of, uh, the, valley of the shadow of death? Does that mean that there isn't a presence of enemies around you? No, but even there the Lord will make for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Okay. Recognizing the sufficiency of God's goodness and his primary role as provider, and the fact that he has given you enough to flourish, because that's the agenda all the way back to Genesis 1.28, that will begin to disconnect and remove the covetousness from your heart. In fact, it does more than that, because those who know this shepherd become workers with him. And so they're not just freed up not to steal, but think of what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but work with his own hands 
so that he may provide for himself and have enough to give to those in need. The goal is not just to turn thieves into active participants in society, but to generous caretakers of their brothers who they used to steal from. And so as we recognize God as shepherd, as we rely on God to fight our battles, right, as the one who makes the breach and goes before them, as we are patient in our longing for God to bring about and set things right, it doesn't create a tolerance in us that says, the world's all burning, but it's fine. Eventually, Jesus is going to show up and it'll be over. But instead, we become participants with him, witnesses like Micah of the injustices of our day, looking for ways to cultivate human flourishing where it is lacking and manifesting a culture that's not built on covetousness but contentment and the goodness of God who provides. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the words of Psalm 51 this morning, and I make that our request, that you would create in us a a clean heart, and that you would renew a right spirit. Addressing these things externally and internally requires wisdom, requires prayer and creativity, but we also know that it is required because it reflects your character because you are the God who knows and remembers and hears and sees. So I pray that you would cultivate in us a heart of contentment, that we wouldn't just sit in judgment of the less tolerable offenses of our day, but that we would seek to... um, live on a different plane, on a different ideology, to reflect a different world. In the beginning of this chapter, Father, we see people who lay on their beds scheming ways to take advantage of their neighbors, and I pray that you would cultivate in us a laying on our beds scheming ways to help. We see a people in this chapter who, because it's in their power, take advantage of their neighbor. I pray that you would show us where it's in our power to advantage our neighbor. Lord, we we desire for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this day and age of, of just outrage and finger pointing and cancel culture, We want to begin with a different posture, and we want to ask that you'd begin by creating that kingdom in our own hearts. And in this little tiny community we call a family here at Calvary. We leave whatever grows out of that to you, but we ask that we would be not conformed to the image of this world, but transformed as a community by the renewing of our mind. That we would know you as sheep know a shepherd in a relationship of trust and dependency and patience. We pray that you would do this work for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.